Hi, and welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. This is Rabbi Avi Killip, and we are once again calling to our Beit Midrash in Israel. We will once again be speaking with Rav Avital Hakstein and Rav Elazar Simon from Hadar's Beit Midrash in Israel. I just want to say that this is the last episode of this series that will be found in the Tashma podcast feed. We're actually going to launch an independent podcast for these conversations. It will be called On Sacred Ground. That should be in your podcast app right now. So right now you can open up your podcast app, whatever it is, and search for On Sacred Ground and subscribe there to listen to these conversations moving forward. Uh, we missed the last two weeks, and I have to say I really missed speaking with you both. Um, Elazar, you in particular had a very eventful uh, last few weeks. Um, we, we missed you even in our last episode, so maybe tell us, you could start by telling us what you've been up to. Uh, yeah, so in the middle of all of this mess, um, we had a baby boy three weeks ago. Um, to... Yeah, so my wife gave birth here in Yerushalayim. It's been crazy. I mean, it's always crazy and exciting, but especially in these times. Um, maybe we'll speak about it later on. Uh, but I, I will, I will say it was uh, also like a very nice form of escapism. Uh, just like to be able to not think about everything. Only there's a part of you that does think about everything. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask if that's if that's possible, actually. Um, and just for those listening, you already have a child at home. Maybe you'll just share about how that how that reception went. Um, so we have a three and a half year old. His name is Telem. And it's been going really well, actually. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's it's challenging, but he, he was ready to be a big brother, and he's very much, like, excited about that, keeps telling everyone, I'm an older brother, I'm an older brother. Uh, it's been going well. And he's very sweet with him. I feel like almost, in a certain way, I'm on the other end, and it's challenges. Actually, we, we've spoken of my son, who's been in the Army since August, and he has a twin sister who went in last week. And um, there's something very counterintuitive for me to be sending children into the army. And specifically this week, my daughter, the thought that uh, part of it is about letting go of what is unique about her and becoming one of a group that all looks the same and uh, acts the way soldiers should act. Um, since we're a country where, where everyone goes into the army, it's not only about combat. And actually, she's um, on, a, on a road to be going into education. She'll be offering soldiers who come from backgrounds where they couldn't get a basic education, she'll be teaching them Hebrew, math, science, English, kind of the basics. Um, but there's, a, so there's this mixture of pride and worry and, um, and thoughts about all our young people and what they're doing. Yeah, I just want to say it really is the opposite. Um, in Israel, uh, uh, when someone has a baby, 
the big thing that everyone tells them, especially in times like this, they tell you, oh, uh, when he's going to be 18, there won't be an army anymore. Um, mm. because, and it's, it's something that's constantly on your mind. Um, yeah, I mean, we're now in this stage that everyone's talking about what is, what's going to happen, right? In the next stages of the, of the war. The scary thing for me is the thought that it is not impossible that my three weeks old son is going to be serving in Gaza and 19 years, crazier things have happened here. Um, and that's just like, that's a very, very heavy thought. Yeah. Do you feel like you can hold the thought that he won't be serving? Um, I think there's no doubt he will serve in the army. But what that army will be doing is a question we have to ask ourselves. We have to have an imagination where um, the answer to that is not war. That's an easy one. And I think we have a responsibility to imagine different possibilities of what that army will be doing and to strive towards the one that we most want to be at. Right, Switzerland has not had a war in, I don't know, a thousand years, they say. They have an army. There's a very big difference between having an army and what that army does. I think we are proud to have an army. We are, um, I would even say, fortunate to have the responsibility. Um, but what that army does, that, that's what we have to... imagine I, i don't know that i have a clear answer but that's what we have to imagine and work towards avital i wonder if you have any maybe wisdom or maybe just experience that you would want to share with elazar of what it has been like for you to raise children to raise boys in israel knowing that they are headed towards army service um what what do you draw on what do you think about as you have like over these years, as you've thought about what this moment where your, your first children are headed into the army or are in the army, um, like what, what has carried you from that moment of bringing the baby home until here? The first thing I want to say is I totally trust Elazar and Alisa, and I don't feel they need my wisdom. <laughs> I think we have to raise our kids With the values we believe in and send them into the army just like into any anything they're going to take on in life trusting that those values will guide them and will be a compass and i hope that you share with me um also a pride that um to walk around with my kids in uniform is a source of pride for me they are taking on tremendous responsibility They're playing out a moment in history that is new to Jews, to the Jewish people, to Israelis, to hold those two, a mixture of a strong core, a strong values core, and also an element of pride that is not arrogant, but that understands responsibility. I'm wondering, Avital, whether you, um, do, do you think you're feeling this pride, especially now, because we're in a time of war, or... Would you have felt that pride regardless? No, I don't feel it more now that we're at war. There are many other emotions that are laid on to it now that we're at war. 
the concern is much, much greater. Um, if you want to know the truth, I remember visiting my grandmother when I was wearing uniform. And I have a déjà vu of the same emotion, feeling that I was doing something significant in those clothes. Um, yeah, it's not connected to war. Mm. Can I ask, um, pull, pull back a little bit on the view and just ask um, how the last two weeks have been where where we are in this war is is always ever changing and just ask what what does it feel like right now in this moment more broadly a lot a lot has happened in the last 2 weeks curious if there's anything in particular you want to reflect on or share i feel that i mean in many senses it's more of the same the main experience is um waking up in the morning and opening the news and seeing more names um of casualties and that's it's been going on for a few weeks and it's still going on and that's in, in that sense not much has changed and it's horrible um i do think that we're everyone is talking a lot more about the next stage and um we all know it's not actually going to end soon but there's it it does i mean they're letting a lot of uh, reserve soldiers go home it's nice seeing a lot of people coming home um, and everyone is very much um, thinking about how the next year is going to look like. Um, universities are back to, to have started the semester now. It's like we're trying to get into routine and, in a sense, carry out a normal life. Um, and we're constantly thinking about how it's going to be. And at the same time, we still have the hostages there and... Um, this feeling that nothing is changing now is getting, it's making everything more urgent with their regards. So I think that's, that's like still very much on everyone's minds. I'll add three things. Um, you asked Elazar if uh, having the baby was uh, a little bit of uh, escaping, thinking of something else. I was at a wedding, I think two weeks ago. And it felt like for the first time in three months, there were a few hundred people in a room happy. And it was an emotion I, I don't think many of us have felt for, for these last few months. Now, it, it sat on top of the reality, right? The, 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 what's happening outside didn't disappear. And everyone there was still connected personally to people at war and so on. But there was this layer of happiness and and. Um, so, so that's, I think a new moment that, that, that we're able to do that. The weddings at the beginning were tiny. This was already a little bigger and so on and so forth. I think the second thing, just to echo Elazar, there's something very, very depressing about the feeling that it's just more of the same. Um, I have a cousin who just marked 80, 80 something days in Gaza. They just mm. released him. He has four little boys. Uh, he said that when they got together, the first days of the war, they did a round. And each one said how, how many days they guessed the war is going to be. Nobody imagined that it was going to be this long. And that's, that's wearing. That's exhausting. Um, and as I was walking here to record, I, I told it as how this before. I realized that I'm a big part of my day. I'm busy 
pushing thoughts away. And I asked myself, I, I was preparing myself for the podcast, and so I had to very actively face the situation. Um, and that's just, it's hard. It's, it's um, as I say, there, there's something just ex exhausting and wearing about it. And I'll share a text that I got this morning, which is another window into what's happening. I'll, it's in Hebrew, but I'll, I'll, I'll read it in English. By chance this morning, I arrived at a Mishnah in Tractate Nazarite. And I don't really have who to share with this, this with, so I'm writing you. And this is the Mishnah. There happened once a story with the Queen Heleni. Her son went to war. And she said, if my son comes back from war, I will be a Nazarite for seven years. Okay, so I will refrain from cutting my hair, drinking wine, and so on. And her son came back from war, and she was a Nazarite seven years. That's the end of the quote. And then the person who wrote the text continues, I've never read a Mishnah in my life and felt such deep identification with this Mishnah. I think we're all Helenia Malka, each one with vows of Nazarite of her own. That's where we're at. First of all, I just, the, when you said, I want to share a text, I just want to say that I wasn't sure if you meant a text message or an ancient text and just wanted sort of note that it turned out to be both, um, which is kind of amazing and beautiful. Can you share with us for you, how, do you feel connected to that text, the idea that, you know, you would make a, make a vow in order to try to bring your children home safely? So I want to say that those who have children or spouses, loved ones on the front lines are living a different existence, a very, very difficult existence. And first of all, um, the text resonates with me. The text, <laughs> right, with its two meanings, resonates with me because part of what I'm trying to do is to support those people, just to be there with the tension with that. Um, I, I know that my children at the moment... Um, are not in the front lines. So um, that that's not where I'm at. And on the other hand, waking up every morning and reaching for the phone to both look at the messages and take a peek at the news and see the names is terrifying, is terrifying. I think the question whether someone would make a vow is interesting. I feel like for us modern people, even when we, even if we really like care about something someone that's like it's not a natural thing for us and i assume most like i don't know anyone that has told me yeah i've made a vow that if he's coming back i'll do this and that but in a sense i wish we would connect to that because i think a lot of so many um people are feeling that they want to do something and they don't have anything to do the partners of people in the front line as you said, Avital, they're living a different reality, and I'm sure they're all they all want to do something. And usually, the feeling is that there's nothing that we can do to affect the situation, and all we can do is wake up in the morning and take take care of the kids and put them in school and and carry on. And this sort of maybe innocent 
believe or faith that my vow, me promising is going to make a difference. Maybe, maybe that would help. I'm, I'm sure there are people that it's, this situation is pushing them to become be better versions of, them, of themselves and making them more um, sensitive. And, and I'm sure also praying a lot and talking to Hashem. I think what you're hearing from us is that on the one hand, we're a country at war. You can't be more active than go to war. And on the other hand, we're feeling like there's very little we can do. And we wish that making a vow could affect reality in such a direct and clear and sure way. And we ask ourselves about the role of prayer. So we reach out to those kinds of things, but there is an element of, of uh, helplessness. There's just, there's just very little we can do to affect the reality. And that's challenging. Your friend wrote to you, I've never identified so much with a text. I just, I think it's, first of all, when we find a story from a woman's perspective as, as women who are studying, I don't know who texted it to you, that can be very powerful. And also I'm struck in your, your comments about it. The, the impulse to make the vow is an impulse to find something active, to find some way to have control that the character who's making this vow in that text is a queen and it's her son is still serving in an army and she still doesn't have the control to ensure that he'll come home safely um just sort of reminds us of what we can and can't control one of the things we've done on this podcast in the last weeks is turn to the weekly parasha and see if there is is something there that is speaking to you? I'm curious if there's something in the Parsha this week that is is speaking to you in this moment, um, maybe in particular about your relationship with your children. Yeah, thank you. There definitely is. I think we have a very famous Midrash in the, in the Parsha. We're starting Sefer Shmot. There's a very famous Midrash about... Um, the question whether to bring kids to a world that is frightening, that you're not sure what their future is going to be like. And the Midrash says th that, um, that when Paro gave the order to throw all the, all the um, males into the, into the river, um, the Midrash says that the Israelites, the men, uh, decided they're not going to have any more children. They're going to divorce their wives. And it's very interesting that according to the Midrash, the person who uh, prevented that was Miriam, the daughter of Amram. So we have different Midrashim about how er earlier on the, the males were also exhausted from work and didn't want to bring children and, and, and their wives um, were the ones that took that responsibility. But, but at, at, at this stage, it's already, it seems even, even the mothers, even the, the, the woman have also, in a sense, lost hope. And it's, it's Miriam, the daughter of Am Amram, that tells him, your decision is worse than, than Pharaoh's because Pharaoh wanted to kill just, just the, the men and you're, um, you're deciding that there won't be any children, that there won't be any, any continuation. And my thought about it is that it's optimistic. This Midrash is optimistic in the sense that it's saying that our children can help us think of a brighter future. Because I think what was brought up in our previous discussion was that thinking about our children makes us despair <laughs> even more. Meaning, mm -hmm. and uh, not today. I remember Avital in the beginning of the war mentioned 
you're looking at your son and you're asking and, and you feel like he's asking you, what am I doing here? Why, why am I in this situation? Um, and the story about Miriam, it's kind of saying, Miriam, from, because maybe, maybe because our children do not have, they don't carry the weight of the responsibility that we do. Um, so they can help us connect to just this um, very natural will to live in a very like clear understanding that there's life and and um and it should continue and we should just strive to to do our best and build the best future we can um children don't know how to be hopeless maybe yeah. um at least at some point and and when i'm thinking about my 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 children that's thinking of them makes me worry so much but also looking at them and 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 just like seeing that what they expect of me is to carry on and to build a future for them so that's like hopeful and in a sense it helps i'll add to that one more thought if i remember the midrash correctly the continuation is or maybe it's a another version of the midrash is these babies were at risk in egypt the parents couldn't take them to Egypt because they were going to be thrown into the Nile. And so they bury them or they cover them. They plant them. Actually, that's the word of the Midrash, if I remember. They plant them in the fields. And God is the one who takes care of them. And the and um, these children grow up from the fields and go as grown-ups or a little bit older children back into Egypt and they wind up being the ones who recognize God when Bnei Israel, the Israelites, cross um, the Red Sea. And so I think they not our kids not only tell us, you need to live. I have a friend whose father was killed in 73, and her big brother, who was I think 9 or 10, she the, um, looked at her mother and said, after a few weeks, you have to get out of bed and take care of us. He just told her that. Mm -hmm. Now, they not only tell us to live, they also take us beyond that. They're the ones who recognize the covenant with God and um, tell us that it's not only about life, but it's about a meaningful life. Um, I think you're right. You know, I've, I've heard both of those midrashim so many times and never quite in this way to really think of them as what are the children teaching us. And I'll say that even, even, or maybe even more so here in America, watching this war, we've spending a lot of energy thinking about how should we be teaching our kids about this moment? What should we be telling our kids about this moment? Um, you know, what is the legacy we want and the memory we want of this moment in their minds? Um, and perhaps, Perhaps it would behoove us to spend a little bit of time in the reverse, thinking about what we can learn from them in this moment. I have tremendous respect and humility towards the young people around who've uh, dropped a lot of life and just gone and just gone to war. And even there, there's what to learn from them about priorities, about taking responsibility, about doing hard things for a bigger 
goal for something that's beyond yourself, things like that. Those are values and ways to live that there's a lot to learn from. Should we end with a poem? Always. Um, it's a poem about faith, but I guess it's another thing that we listen that, that if we're lucky, we can learn from our children. So it's a poem by Itai Fust. And he's in conversation with a poem we've spoken about before, which is a poem by Chernikhovsky, who talks about faith in, in human beings, in mankind. And so Itai Fust says the following. Maybe I'll read it in Hebrew and then in English. Ovdan ha'emunah ba'adam hu ovdan ha'emunah. Losing trust, losing faith in people is losing faith. Gam Elohim et amal aluchot avanim karishonim lachash lemoshe ameyuash ki ba'adam a'amin. Also God, as he slaved over the second tablets, making the tablets, whispered, to the desperate Moses, I believe in mankind, in humanity. Because also God believes in humans who believe in humans. I think that's one of our big challenges now, to, to have faith, faith of all sorts, also in humans. Can you share with us one, one possible image or answer of what it means for you to believe in humans? Yesterday, I met a, um, a CNN anchor, and she said to me, but you have to believe what they say, that they want you gone, that they want to annihilate you, that they want to kill you brutally. They're saying it. You have to believe them. And I think for me, believing in humanity is believing that next to all those evil wishes, there are also many good ones. Hmm. It's a believing that requires some, I guess, not disbelieving, but believing beyond just what you're being told and asking of what is also true. Elazar, do you want to share a thought about belief, belief in humanity? I suppose uh, going home to your newborn should count enough. You shouldn't need to say anything more, but if you want to add something on top of that. Yeah, but I'll add one more thing. We, we have amazing students in our Beit Midrash here. Mm -hmm. um, both of us taught yesterday the, a group of our fellows program. And just seeing a group of 15 or a bit more um, young people, some of them going in and out of the army, serving. All of them have lost people that they know in the last weeks. And they were just sitting here and learning Torah. And they were so pleasant and mm -hmm. so gentle and so deep. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that gives me a lot of faith. In, um, <laughs> in us and in humanity in general. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that image. We'll just close by sharing again 
these conversations, as I've said, and and I'll say again, have been so meaningful to me, and I know to so many of our listeners, um, that we're gonna create create our own independent podcast that will be explicitly for these conversations. That podcast is called On Sacred Ground, and you can search for it now in your podcast app and subscribe there to hear these future conversations. Um, this will be the last one of these episodes in this Tashma feed, so you'll find our conversations there. And to the two of you, just want to preemptively offer gratitude um, for for those future conversations. I know they are they are meaningful to people, and we're so grateful for your Torah. Thank you to Effie Unterman for producing this episode and to David Chabinski for recording and editing this episode.